Today we shall dance. Um, we shall, actually. Go listen to this. This is on our D2L homepage, courtesy of Eric. Thank you, Eric. Um, this video that you were just listening to is an exercise in phonotactic awareness. So what, what these guys did, they're Italian speakers. They made up fake English. So the song sounds like it's in English, but none of those words are really English words. And the reason it sounds like it's in English is because it obeys English phonotactic and syllabification rules, which is our next big topic. Plus also, we shall today learn a dance, but not that particular dance, I know. What a great class project it would be to do a production number at the end of the semester with the dancing and the video. Wayne says no. <laughs> no fun, you guys. Okay, so so click in. You know, we'll we'll leave this start of class poll open here for a short while. This is where we are. We're on Wednesday, the fifteenth. Couple of reminders. You don't have anything that you have to turn in this Friday, but I'm really, really hoping that you're going to go ahead and start storing your illustrations of the IPA articles in the Dropbox. Because next week, to have a successful and timely Field Notebook 2 submission, you need two files in the Dropbox. You need your Field Notebook 2. And you need your illustrations of the IPA article. At least the first page of it. Better yet, if you can just upload the whole PDF. So far, one person has done so. I didn't check to see who it was, but that person gets the happy face double stars for the day. Um, you might be waiting to get feedback on your homework, too. That's fine. But I encourage you to go ahead and upload that article to the Dropbox for Field Notebook 2 as soon as you can, because then you won't forget. Um, 
Another couple of logistical announcements. I need to cancel my office hours for today. I apologize. I have this series of meetings that take me until I'll be done at 7.30, but they kind of start very shortly after class. So I need my little bit, a couple of minutes after class to post things for you guys, and then I'll be off and I'll be unavailable. If you do want to talk to me, you want to make an appointment, please send me an email, um, and I will find a time when we can meet. Okay? What else? What else? What else? Uh, your readings are ahead of us. So you should now be reading the chapter called Morphology, if you're keeping up with the syllabus. In lecture, we're a little bit behind the syllabus. We have yet to finish phonotactics and syllabification. In fact, we really haven't discussed phonotactics yet together. But I'm not worried about that too much because I know you guys, some of you, I've met you, you're smart, you can read. <laughs> All right, enough said about that. Uh, okay, so let's see, what else do we want to say? Uh, now, this person whose cat it is, Kali, I, hmm, her name might be Elizabeth. Is this person here? She signs off her email messages using her last name, which is spelt K-A-H-L-E, which I think might be Kali. I don't know, and either she's embarrassed, so she's not going to wave her hand and say, call me, Barb, or she's not here. But whoever she is, she has a cat named Jeannie, as in I dream of. And that cat is sanguine about exams. We have an exam coming up. Now it's after field number two. But I just thought I'd take the opportunity to remind you that there's going to be an exam. You could, I call it exam one. You can call it our midterm exam. We have two exams this term. Um, it is going to uh, be available in D12. So the exam will work sort of like a quiz, sort of like your reading quizzes work, except that it opens at 8 AM on the Monday of the week it's due, and it closes at midnight on the Friday of the week it's due. There's no time limit within that, but it's only going to be open for those five days. Um, and it focuses on material we've covered in lecture. So if this exam turns out to be like previous exams I have used for this class, and of course we write new ones every term, so if you have one for the whole semester, it won't help. Um, I, I stick maybe a couple of reading questions in there at the beginning, just to double check. And then 95%, 90 to 95% of the points on the exam come from lecture. So, Resources you want to be able to have access to include your brain, your memory cells, plus also, I know that's uh-oh for me too, plus also the lecture slides, the podcast, the posted class notes. Yes, sir? By reading, do you mean 100% of the time or fish off the time? Both. Both count as readings. Yeah. 
So most of what's going to be on the exam will come off of those lecture slides, lecture notes, and our memories of what actually was said. Okay. So it opens on the 27th at 8 in the morning. It will do that. And it will close on Friday evening at midnight. Now, we haven't necessarily noticed a problem from the fact that D2L normally reserves the period from 10 p.m. until midnight as possible maintenance to D2L time. And what that normally means is that D2L runs just fine on Fridays, 10 till midnight, and you never know anything that happened. But sometimes it means that D2L performance is poor between 10 p.m. and midnight on Friday. So I just want you to be alert to this in advance. Don't wait till midnight on Friday to finish. Okay, you have all week. Save your work as you go along. If you get shut out at the end because the maintenance window happens, I can go in behind the scenes and submit your exam for you as long as your answers are saved. But if your answers aren't saved, I can't help you. So please try to make sure you've got everything in there, at least on a first pass, before 10 p.m. on Friday. And then hopefully you have the other the last two hours if you want to use them. For me, my brain does not work after 9 p.m. To the extent that it works before 9 p.m., that's debatable too, but there's a drop off. So I wouldn't be in there at that time anyway, but you might, okay? So just, you know, be aware. No, and as I said, no time limit. So don't worry about being squoze for time. The exam is it's uh, multiple choice, true, false, matching, multi-select type questions, objective type questions. If I were giving it in an in-class exam, I would expect the best students to be able to do the whole exam easily within a 15-minute window, but you have a lot longer than that. So I don't make it a huge, long, scary exam just because it's open for a longer time. Okay, and our important announcements, which are carved in stone, I'm going to flash at you every day for the next several classes so that when I get the tearful phone call from the student later on saying, I didn't know, I didn't know, I can say, ha-ha, but remember how we flashed the carved in stone important announcement slide multiple times. So this says PDF only, right? PDF only. You have a resource in D2L you can use to help if you haven't figured it out yet, but you should figure it out soon. Um, your responsibility. So if you think you saved it as PDF, but we get it and it's not, that's your job. Make sure, okay, if you even want to do a test upload early, I can check it for you if there's any question. Um, things have to be in the Dropbox on time, all of them, or we don't accept the work. Yes? If you go into the Dropbox, it So yeah, the Dropbox should tell you that too, but I'm happy to use my human eyeballs on it as well to give you extra guarantees. It just means you have to get there a little bit early so you have time. Yes? Can we send drafts to our TAs and get feedback on them? So can you send drafts to your TAs and get feedback on them? That depends. So you should ask your TA about their schedule. 
For example, I would expect that if I sent my TA a draft of my work on Thursday afternoon for something that was due on Friday, that I would not get feedback on that. Um, and I would not, I would also not, I'd say it's not fair to expect your TA to pre-grade. Right, so you send them a draft to get feedback, that's fine. Most of us, I think, are willing to do that, provided we have time in the morning, but we're not going to pre-grade it for you. We're going to try to help. Better, probably, if you can, is to schedule some time to sit down with your TA with a draft. Then we know that you're spending the time with us, too. But, but generally, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Just be respectful about how you do it. And we know you guys are all overcommitted. Problem is, so are all of those, all of your TAs are also overcommitted. So you need to be careful with that kind of thing. Okay. Look. I mean, that's such a beautiful picture. What's this? So this is Leanne's dog, and the dog's name is? Olive. Olive. And she is sweet. Okay. I didn't make fill in the blanks for this this time. I'm just saying it. I think you should have gotten out of our lecture last time. I think you should now know how to go about building your consonant inventory and how to put it in the chart, right? We did an example. You know that the chart we're looking for this time is the kind of chart that has the places of articulation and the manners of articulation. It's not a three by three table like you have on field number one, right? And you know that you have to have some sounds where you've got two symbols showing up in the same box in the chart, and that's because those two sounds are distinguished only by either voice, voiceless, or else aspirated, plain, glottalized. Those are the choices you, you can choose from. You have to have one, and whatever you choose to use in your system, that's what you're providing us minimal pairs for. So when I get the question from you that says, how many minimal pairs are we required to have? What, I, what am I gonna ask you? How many pairs of sounds do you have in your inventory that differ only by voicing? Okay, so that'll be different for different students. But everybody has to have at least one. And then in the vowel inventory, we talked about putting together a vowel inventory. And I said, your vowel inventory for this assignment needs to use one of length or else tone or else nasalization. In addition to identifying the vowels by their vowel quality, AKA the vowel place of articulation. Um, and so whichever of these you pick, length, tone, or nasalization, that's what you need minimal pairs on. Okay? Okay. That's what I think you should have gotten out of that. You'll notice that Olive sometimes sleeps with her little friend who is called Elephant. Or he. He? She. Can you change your mind about your sounds? Yes. So let's imagine you go through your field notebook one and you think, oh, I was so crazy. I used 82 different vowel symbols in my words. I don't want to do 82 different vowels in my inventory. Can you change your mind? Yes. 
Now, yes, you can. Make the inventory you want. When you go back and do your revision for the field report, then you'll need to sort of retroactively clean up those basic words so that they match what you ultimately decided you want to do. Does that make sense? Not, you don't have to stick exactly with what you came up with at each step. That's one of the reasons we're having you do this in little pieces. Okay? Um, so we'll look at your field report at the end of the semester and make sure everything in that document is internally consistent. But we're not going to take off a grade because you changed your inventory between field level one and field level two. You might want to do that now that you're learning more about this. Okay? Okay. There's a menagerie at Leanne's house. That's elephant. And and look. He's called Poquito. Don't you want to do IPA transcriptions only of Spanish? Because then you just use the vowels that we all know, and it's spelled like it sounds. Um, in Spanish, that's not spelled with letter K, though, in the orthography, right? That's spelled Q. Q. Yeah. Q. 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 And then these guys are called. Hershey, Murphy, mm, Linus. Here's the diphthong. Murphy, Murphy, So let's go back to where we stopped last time, which was we had looked at this vowel inventory, which I gave you as, as an example. And I said, look, this inventory only has four vowel qualities. That's common. Most common inventory has five qualities. Some inventories have more. Vowel quality one, two, three, four. So I use this term vowel quality as synonymous with vowel place of articulation. But the system has these other features in the vowels. So in the vowels, Duration of the vowel can matter to meanings in the words. So we say that this system has phonemic vowel lengths. And and Navajo being a naturally occurring human language is complex. Also tone, so pitch can change the meaning of word, Cassandra. <laughs> ah, so Cassandra asks, does this mean all of the vowels have both a long and a short version? Yes. All of the vowels have a high pitch and a low pitch version. Yes. So, and that's typical of how these kinds of features work, though it's not 100% universal. There are a few languages where only one or two of the vowels have a long versus short distinction, and the rest don't. Uh, that's really, really rare. And also, this language has every vowel can appear nasal or oral, and that matters. Um, and the language has free diphthong formation. So you are not required to have diphthongs in your language, but you can. Remember, we talked about what the diphthongs of English were. They're pretty restricted. But it's common that languages can let you combine any two vowel qualities. And it's like what they do is they say, you can take two places of articulation for vowels, squeeze them together into one vowel, and make that a diphthong. It counts as one vowel. Okay. So 
We, some people will say Navajo has four vowels. Other people will say there are at least 32. Yeah, I, both of those statements are true. So I would say it has four vowel qualities plus other features. Your language will have some number of vowel qualities plus at least one of these other features. And for, for whichever one you pick, that's what you need your minimal pairs to show. So I'm going to give you some minimal pairs from Navajo so you can practice what that would look like. Um, and actually, let me start by giving you what would be the minimal pairs in English should English have such a distinction. So let's say this together. We have be, be. It still means the same thing, right? One of them might be emphatic, but it doesn't change the meaning of the word. Be. Be. Everybody should do this one so we can practice our nasals. Be. 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 Just sounds like you've got a weird regional dialect or something. Be. Be. So neither of those features is neither None of those features matters in the English vowel system. Those, don't, those aren't minimal pairs, right? They're pairs, but each pair is really the same word twice. The meanings of the words don't change. In Navajo, here's a triplet. Now, this has some funny looking things, so let's practice saying the words. This is yi, 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 and that's cha, but it's ejective, so we want to say cha, yi, yi. He is scratching it. If we make this vowel long, we get Still a group about scratching, but who's doing the scratching? We us, two of us. Right, right. And what if I say Yeah, so I, so now it's first person. So, so the, that's a minimal triplet. You see that the words mean different things. Secret preview. This also means that in this language, the phonological property of tone acts like a morpheme. Mmm, it has meaning. Say that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we also have this minimal pair. So we have cha. And chomp. And if we were Navajo, we would all be embarrassed to say the second one. Right? Because they're not the same at all. So the nasalization distinction triggers a difference in meanings of words. All right. Marika. Uh, there you are. Yay. Last time we had, a, or maybe two classes ago, we had one of your dogs featured. But now she has, Marika has another of her dogs is, and adorable in that face. 
So the last step in your field notebook too is you need to think about the rules in your language that restrict how you can combine these sounds together when you build words. So far, all we've said to you about that in lecture has been, try to make sure you can pronounce what you write. So we want to explore a little bit more closely what it means to be pronounceable. And it turns out that what counts as pronounceable varies from language to language based on the rules that particular languages have for the combinations of vowels and consonants. So I'm going to close the opening poll, and I'm going to start you a new poll here in a second. Okay. So. Here is a sequence of sounds. The sequence of sounds is, say it with me, Now imagine that's a word, that a pronounceable word. If you think it's a pronounceable word, click one for yes. If you think not, click two for no. Please, in the next three, two, uh, one. Yeah. So, is there a right or a wrong answer to this question? Depends on the language that you're speaking. But I can say that the universal tendency in languages is to call that unpronounceable, just like 75% of you guys did. What's wrong with it? Why is it? How, why? Why? No vowels. Now, all languages have both consonants and vowels. All spoken human languages that have ever been documented have vowels in the inventory and consonants in the inventory, too. But not every language requires every single word to have a vowel in it. There are a few languages, not many, a few languages in the world that can build words with no vowels. In fact, English can do that. But English can't do that on this string. And I think that that particular string of consonants is not a possible word in any human language because of the particular consonants that are in the string. But that, you know, we could find a language that does it, I suppose. Let me now ask you about another example. So now the string is A, U, A, E, O. Just those sounds strung together. Is that a pronounceable word? If you think so, one. If you think not, two. Mm. And in the next three, two, one, if you haven't made a distinct a decision, just pick. Ah. So let's let's say this guy together. A I'm sorry, A-U-A-E-O, A-U-A-E-O, A-U-A-E-O. Okay, so we're making vowels, pronounceable. Do you hear, though, how when you, when you go from 
A U. You get a ya. That's a glide. When you go from See what glides do? <laughs> so, so this string as it's written is probably not pronounceable. Probably, in order to pronounce this string, we have to stick little w's and y's in there. Sort of the natural part of articulating those different vowel places all in a strand. So, we have something that's all consonants, that's generally not good. We have something that's all vowels, that's generally not good. Now, let me give you an example. Black and tan. I don't know this dog's name. Lugnut. Lugnut. What a good boy. Let's say it together. Ta, fi, pe, lu, so, shi. Ta, fi, pe, lu, so, shi. Ta, fi, pe, lu, so, shi. It's a little long, but otherwise probably pretty good in terms of pronounceability. Why is that? You know the answer. Because see how it's always a consonant, one consonant, one vowel, one consonant, one vowel. So I just put these little periods in between the sequence of consonant and vowel, consonant and vowel. It turns out that that kind of sequence, consonant, vowel, is permissible in every naturally occurring <coughs> spoken human language. And it's a sequence that babies babble first as they're acquiring them. So there's something really special about 1C, 1B, in that order. What's special about it, I'm going to claim, is that it's syllabifiable. It's syllabifiable. So when we think about rules interleaving consonants and vowels in languages, you can think of it as if you're a spoken language, you have to be made out of consonants and vowels. And in order to make yourself pronounceable, you have to, you have to alternate. Now, you can, languages allow you some leeway. Sometimes you can get more than one vowel in a row. If you get more than one vowel in a row and it counts as one syllable, that's a diphthong. You can get two vowel qualities in a row. One syllable is a diphthong. You and some languages can get three vowel qualities in a row in one syllable. That's a triphthong. That's as big as they ever get. No language allows more than three vowels together inside of one syllable. Okay. Consonants, we have some more, more leeway with crossing basically. So we can explain this, this set of facts about how many consonants or vowels you can get in a row in words in any spoken language by positing this thing, the syllable, and saying, ah, you're a word. You have to be at least one syllable. Okay? All right. So, here is a spectrum.
spectrogram. Remember the spectrogram and waveform? I want to now try to convince you that the syllable has an acoustic purpose, not just like rules for interleaving C's and B's for articulation, but also for acoustics. This is a snippet of some dude's political talk. I don't even care what it was. This says behaviorally incorrect as, the, as they may be sartorially correct. What I want you to notice is that there's pulses. Loud, soft, loud, soft, loud, soft. Remember that there's the waveform. Same information shown in the spectrogram where we get pitch as well. Either way you look at it, human speech is comes in these pulses of, of acoustic energy. And if we look more closely at a subset of it, you can sort of track those pulses and each, each peak roughly gives you the peak of a syllable. So acoustically, what syllables allow you to do is they allow you to alternate loud with soft, which gives language rhythm, which we know we need. And it allows you to hear all the sounds. If you put a whole bunch of soft things in a row right together, it's really hard to hear the edges of them. If you put loud things in a row all together, it's really hard to hear the edges of them. So, you syllabify. And I just want you to become comfortable with this kind of, because that's going to be the, the form of our dance. That's where our dance is going to come from. Now, syllables in all spoken human languages pay attention primarily to a particular kind of loudness, which is the kind of loudness I will call sonorant energy. You know the word sonorant already. The sonorant sounds are the vowels, the glides, the liquids, the nasals. Those are manners of articulation, right? Those manners of articulation give us sonorant energy. The sonorant energy is it's the kind of acoustic energy that comes in these formants, the formant structure. So remember what formant structure gives you is the kind of sound you can sing and hear a clear pitch of. It's, it's sonorant energy in particular that syllabification seems to care about. So what has sonorant energy besides these dogs to make sonorant energy, you have to have free airflow. That's what these things do. The, the decorative detail to that is that, for some reason, nasals work really well for sonorant energy, too. Mm. Right. So it's the manner of articulation categories that tell you whether or not a sound is sonorant. And in particular, the most sonorant thing in the world is a vowel, diphthong. Vowel. Sonorant, 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 sonorant. After vowels, the next most sonorant things are the sonorant consonants, the nasals, the liquids, and the glides. And the things that are sonorant happen to also always be things that involve vocal fold vibration. Does that make sense when you think about it in terms of singability? That vocal, that's what's giving you the pitch. 
So your plosives, your advocates, your fricatives, those do not give you summer energy. Okay, let's learn our dance. What languages do is they organize acoustical energy into pulses of sonority that are usually surrounded by edges with less sonority or without sonority. So a syllable, acoustically, is a thing that has a peak of sonority, here's the peak, and has edges, less peak, edges. That's our dance. You can do it seated if you want. So let's dance the sonority of syllables. You can just use your arms or if you want to stand up. You can use your whole self. No versus up. Yeah, there you go. Good. Okay. I'm going to give you some syllables to dance, and you'll tell me if they're good or not. This is pot. So pot. Nice, right? Lark. How about pop? Lovely. How about ah? So, so ah. That's allowed in some languages. It's not allowed. English allows this kind of sonority contour in a syllable. But you see what the, the problem with it is that it doesn't start low. How about this one? Hurt. <laughs> doesn't think so. But it still has the right overall shape. That's good. How about this one? Pa, coo, ah. How many syllables do we have? Has to be two. Correct. Has to be two. Universally. So if you have a sequence C, V, C, V, where the C's are not sonorant, your language has no choice but to count that as two beats. It just is two beats. Now let's do this guy. Oh, oh, two. Ah. How many syllables is that? Can that be one? It cannot be one. Can it be two? Ugh. This guy, it's a little bit, it's some languages will tolerate that little decorative. Oof. English won't. Um, Russian will, but English won't. This guy is a vowel, so it's a pure peak. It's got a plosive and then another vowel, so there have to be at least two syllables in there. You see how you can now map your IPA onto <laughs> syllables? Some of your words are going to be straightforwardly mappable with only one right answer. Other of your words are going to be where you can choose that one syllable. Is it two? Is it how many is it? Oh, and I said it must be three, but it's actually not. Energy. So, somebody in this room is going to recognize these words because I stole them from an actual field notebook one. What you should know is that this crazy symbol is a vowel. It's a vowel that is the unround equivalent 
of the mid-back tense vowel O. So if you can make an O with your lip spread, O, that's that. So <laughs> I'm not good at it, but I'll try this with you. So pa. First thing I'm going to do to that when I'm trying to explore its syllabification is I'm going to change it into CD notation that helps me to see what's going on. So, how many syllables is this word? Two, correct. And what's the shape of each syllable? Shape. So, in our dance, the shape is but in, in um, CV skeleton talk, the shape of each is CV. CV. So it's got two CV syllables. Now how about this one? That's an ooh. That's not around ooh. If you speak Japanese, you've got that. Now, so, yeah. The word is better than I'm making it sound. So if you're here and you made this word, don't feel bad because I'm not saying it right. Here's a case where we have some play. We know that this syllable is at, this word is at least one syllable long. Might it be two? It's possible because it's got two V's, so it could be a CD plus a VC. Might it be one syllable? Yeah. If it's one syllable, what's that? That's a diphthong, right? And if that's a diphthong, then that's the right CD skeleton. Yes? But then wouldn't it need that little arc over it? Ah, so the question is, if it's a diphthong, wouldn't you want to put the tie bar, the little arc? And the answer to that is, it's lovely if you do, but it's not required. And weirdly, linguists don't always put the little tie bar on diphthongs. They do it on affricates in consonants, but not on diphthongs and vowels. So it would be, it would certainly clarify if you put it in there, but you're not obligated to. So either way, we know if our language has this word, then it has syllables of shape C D, right? Has to. If we add this word, what additional syllable shape must we allow? We, we either have to allow this to be two syllable words, we've got CD, which we already listed, plus VC, or if that word is one syllable long, our new syllable shape in our inventory is CBC. Okay? Either could be a right answer. Just depends on how you describe your language. Here's another another word from the same field notebook. That's the string of vowels. Now here's the trick with a string of vowels. You heard that when we say those strings of vowels, if they're not diphthongs, we tend to put glides between them. So and we also know that languages can have uh, monophthongs, they can have diphthongs, maybe triphthongs, but never quadriphthongs. I spit. So that can't be one syllable. 
Could it be two syllables? It's possible. Triphone plus monophone. Uh, could it be two syllables? Or it could be, this is a triphone plus monophone. Could it be two syllables? It could be two diphthongs. Uh, could it be three syllables? Sure. Could it be four syllables? Sure. So you've given yourself many, many right answers to choose from, but you've also given yourself some wrong ones. Can't be one syllable. Now, let's imagine, though, that this word really is a word in the same language as all of these. We're going to have to add a new syllable shape to our inventory, right? What's the syllable shape? V with no C. There's no consonant in the word, so that means we have to have syllables that don't have consonants in them. Some languages allow that, not all languages do. So this is how you work from the words you've already built, looking at the material and the readings about syllable structure to try to say what the syllable structure is in your language. And we have some we have some vocabulary that you can use for this. So when you're talking about a syllable, you can identify the parts of the syllable according to their relative sonority. If you are a syllable, you have a nucleus. Uh, sometimes I call this a peak. Sometimes I call it a nucleus. Those are synonymous. You can use either word, peak or nucleus. You cannot be a syllable if you don't have a peak. <coughs> always, always, always obligatory. Now, what can count as a syllable peak in any given language varies. So every human language has at least some vowels. If you are a vowel, you are a syllable peak. You have no choice. That's the only role you can play. Every vowel in every language is always a syllable peak. In fact, it might be the case that the correct definition of vowel is syllable peak. Maybe that's why vowels exist. If you're a vowel, you're a peak. You've got no choice. Some languages allow syllables that are just a peak, and they don't have anything else in them, remember we saw that with our, our word that was four vowels in a row. But not all languages do allow that. If you're a consonant, well, if you're a consonant, are you a syllable peak or not? We have different stories we can tell for different consonants in different contexts. So, some languages allow sonorant consonants to be peaks. English does, but not all languages do. Some languages, just a few, will allow every consonant in the inventory to be a syllable peak. Those are really rare, but they're cool. I'm working on one this semester with a graduate student. It's delicious. We had a word, I don't know how many syllables the word was, but we were looking at this word the other day and had a string of six consonants before you got to a vowel, and two of the consonants were variant kinds of K, and there was an S and a barred L in there. Oh my word. So, if you're a vowel, you know you're a P. If you're a consonant, you got some, some messing around you can do. 
think about words that would be one syllable long in your language. Maybe you invented some of those. If you did, they're really, really handy. Because if you've got a word that's one syllable long, and it has a vowel, and that vowel is preceded by a consonant, then you know that that consonant is not the peak of the syllable. It's called the onset. So if you have a consonant that's in the syllable, and it comes before the peak, the term for that is onset. And some languages allow consonant clusters to be in that position. So in English, we have words like plow, plow, one syllable, pull, onset, ow, diphthong, peak. All languages allow at least some syllables to have onsets. Remember how we said CD. CD is the universal syllable. So onsets are good. You should be able to allow one consonant onset. Not all languages allow clusters in an onset. You have one syllable word and it ends in a consonant that follows a vowel, then you know that that ending consonant is a coda. And you can combine the coda and the uh, nucleus together and make a constituent called a rhyme, which I will tantalize you with. But in order to understand what a rhyme is and why it's called that, what I want you to do between now and next time is think about words that rhyme with each other. One-syllable words are best. Try to think about all the one-syllable words, which ones rhyme with each other, and how do you break a rhyme, and then we'll use that to identify this constituent rhyme. Fun fact, screeched is the longest one-syllable word in English.